Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D, the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBA School. And today, we're going to talk MBA admissions and MBA applications um, with Emily Sawyer Kegerace, who is the owner of M- Military MBA Consulting. And today's episode is really going to be geared towards those uh, military applicants who are looking for a leg up in the MBA admissions process so they can be successful I'm in finding their way to a top MBA program. And Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm really excited to get to talk to you a little bit more about um, what you know and, and the ex- expertise you have in this space. And we're going to dive into that. But maybe to start, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get into MBA admissions consulting, you know, really focusing in on uh, military candidates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Great to be here, Al. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, Yeah, so I began my post-MBA career in brand management um, at Johnson & Johnson. Um, And at J&J, MBA hires are really heavily involved in recruiting and hiring and uh, onboarding new new MBAs into the organization. And I found I, I just really loved that part of my job. Um, and that, uh, that ended up being a career pivot for me into higher ed, um, and I became the MBA program and admissions director at Mississippi State University. Um, my husband was then transferred for work to Japan, um, and so I was looking for opportunities to be able to stay in the admissions and MBA world, but do something remotely, um, being able to work from, from wherever I needed to in the world. Um, and so I got uh, hooked up with Veritas Prep through, um, through some colleagues and friends, and I became a head consultant for Veritas Prep back in 2009. Um, and I was with them for about 10 years as a head consultant before deciding to branch out and start my own admissions consulting organization, Military MBA Consulting, um, in 2019. Great. Thank you so much for that background. So it sounds like you're probably an expert at vir- uh, working remotely and all the virtual work that all of us are, are doing now. Uh, so you hopefully have a little bit of a leg up there. But it's so that's, true. Yeah. <laughs> that's really great. Okay. So, um, you know, you talked a little bit about this uh, initially, but your primary focus area of focus is on candidates who are from the military. Can right. you share a little bit more about how specifically you uh, began focusing on this demographic? Absolutely. So, so I mentioned this move to Japan um, in, uh, earlier on in my career, um, and that move was actually because my husband was a C-130 pilot with the U.S. Air Force, um, and so we ended up getting stationed in Japan. Um, and that was really my first touch point with the military community, um, and but I became part of the military community for, for really over a decade, um, and that helped me understand the unique issues that military applicants face transitioning out of the military either into graduate level education or civilian careers. Um, And I I became just really passionate about helping military applicants um, gain access to these top elite MBA programs in the U.S. I found they had a really valuable voice to contribute, um, oftentimes had a lot more leadership experience um, uh, and global experience than even a lot of of their um, their peers. 
Um, and so over time, um, I began working more and more with military applicants at Veritas Prep. Um, and I sort of developed this reputation as, as the go-to military uh, military person. Um, so I would have a client um, that would get into HBS round three or um, gain admission to an M7 with a GMAT below uh, 600. Um, and my colleagues sort of branded me the, uh, the veteran whisperer. Um, so I, I really found my niche was helping translate um, the military community and work experience that I had come to, to know and helping them translate that into the, to the MBA admissions process. That's great. And I love how you were able to take some of the experiences that you had and to be able to use them in a way that helps a group of people solve a, you know, a pretty good opportunity. So that's really awesome. All right. So let's, let's dig into this a little bit. So applicants from the military are looking to transition into a quote unquote civilian career, right? That's a pretty common, that is the common theme for these military candidates. Yeah. So, so with that, could you maybe talk a little bit, a little bit about the importance of setting short and long-term goals and being able to articulate them in your application and, you know, with this in mind, right? So yes, obviously transitioning into a civilian career, like that's the goal, but can you get a little bit more uh, detail and insight into like how to actually set those short and long-term goals and just to move beyond just, okay, yes, I know I need to move into a civilian career, like really dig into that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I found when I began working with military clients um, that a lot of times I was working with folks who had never had a resume before, who'd never done a formal interview. Um, a lot of them had gone to service academies or even just on ROTC undergrad, um, and it just wasn't something that they'd ever needed in their, in their military career. Um, and so, so that really kind of impressed upon me the importance of, um, of really taking the time um, when you're a military applicant to really think about and explore what you want a civilian career to be. Um, and so really for military applicants, that boils, back, boils down to something I like to call transferable skills, right? Um, so what is it that you've done that you like doing that then has um, you know, an equivalent in the private sector? So for example, that might be um, you really enjoy managing large budgets or, you, or uh, large teams of people, or you've been really heavily involved in logistics and operations. Um, so it's matching up kind of those, uh, those transferable skills with industries of interest. Um, so just because you're coming from a military background doesn't mean you have to go into the government sector post-MBA or into a nonprofit or into a, um, you know, a government consulting type organization. Um, so it's really about matching, you know, connecting the dots between, you know, what's uh, tangible, real experiences for you, and then kind of pairing that with, with maybe some, some new industries of interest. Um, you know, most schools really want to know why you want to get an MBA. Um, and I don't think you can effectively answer that question until you have a really good sense of what you want post-MBA. Um, so so in, in large part, this is a really about making a case um, to make a case for the degree and the target schools you're looking at, you really have to be able to connect those dots. Um, and, and like I said, I really, I really rely heavily on, on helping understand those transferable skills to, to get there and articulate those, those short and long-term goals. I think that's great advice. And one of the things that I know, regardless of what app, who your background is, whether you're a military background or, or not, one of the big the challenges is figuring out what is even out there. Right. And right. I think that can be particularly challenging if you've been doing whether it's you've only worked in the military or you've only been an accountant is really figuring out like what are those what are those shorter long term term goals that you might have. And so do you have any advice or do you have any guidance or what are the types of things you maybe do with military candidates um, who kind of come to you and say, Emily, I get it. I know I need short and long term goals, but 
how like like how do I even figure those out, right? Like I know there's stuff out there, but like how do I know what what those are for me? Yeah, so I think I think it goes back to kind of some of the things I just mentioned. It's really let's start with what you like doing, right? Like mm-hmm. what are you what are yeah. you good at? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> are you really good at numbers or are you really better with with people or is is your jam logistics, right? Like what what is it that that really kind of um, you know, to you know, to kind of sound woo, a little woo-woo here, like what makes your heart sore? Like, what are you really passionate about? Um, so it's thinking about um, just the things that you enjoy and that you're good at. And then you're really using this as an opportunity to explore, um, you know, kind of tra- what I would call traditional post-MBA industries, right? Because we know that those are there, right? There's There are sort of these these pathways post-MBA that are, are the most common. And so I think when you're looking at um, short-term and long-term goals, the short-term goal is where we say, hey, you know, let's focus on something that's, you know, that's realistic based on your background. So you've been doing logistics for the Navy. Great. Maybe we want to talk about going into a short-term role that's that's tied to supply chain and operations, but we're going to talk about maybe doing that in an industry like tech, for example, um, or manufacturing. So you're you're taking kind of the, the functional skill area and pairing it with one of those more traditional post-MBA industries. Um, and that way, you know, kind of making, forming a marriage of, of kind of your interests, but also what makes sense for for the for the post MBA experience, and then your long term goals can really be um, what I would call more aspirational, and you'll see the word aspirations a lot in uh, in traditional MBA uh, essay sets, right? Like, what are your long? What is your dream? What are your aspirations? Um, and so that's when you have a little bit more license to um, to think big and, and dream big about. Um, you know, what that longer term goal is. And, you know, that longer term goal is really like 10 years plus out. It's not, um, you know, it's not the five year term. It's really kind of way down the road in your career. Thanks for unpacking that. I think that's really, that's a really good insight. And I think one of the, one of the things that I often see in both in the admissions process, but just in people who are making career transitions in general is really understanding that while some things will change, some things will remain the same. And Mm -hmm. there's always, to your point, you know, by being able to start either with things that you're good at or things you like doing, um, you're not throwing everything away, right? Like, yes, you are moving to a civilian career, but some of the things that made you successful in the military are going to be the things you want to lean on when you transition into this new career. You just may be using them in a different way, or you may be, uh, if, if, you know, we're both marketers here, so we can appreciate the notion of pricing and packaging. So maybe repackaging some of those uh, skills that you have just saying them in a different way or um, applying them in a different function. And that is always a really, uh, it's a very doable process, but sometimes it takes a little bit of thought, a little bit of reflection or being able to work with someone like yourself to really dig in and and tease some of those nuances out. But it is a really important step, whether you are trying to determine your short or long-term goals for an MBA application process or just a career change, you know, in general, Um, you don't have to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. Um, there's still a lot of great stuff in there that you want to take. You want to take with you. You just need to tease it out a little bit more. That's exactly okay. right. Okay, so let's let's get to the nitty gritty here. Let's let's okay. talk about some things I know you live, breathe daily with all of your your great. clients and applicants. Um, so first off, when to start? When should people? When should the military applicants start the applications and application process? 
Yeah, so I have, I have two answers, um, and, and that's, that's contingent really on whether you've taken um, a GRE or a GMAT test already. So for the folks that already have a score in hand that they're really happy with, um, I recommend a timeline of about three to six months. Um, and obviously, you're going to err on the longer side of that timeline if you've got a lot of other stuff going on, right? You've got a deployment coming up. You've got just a lot on your plate um, at work. Um, you're going to want to really look at that kind of longer timeline just to ensure that you, that you really have the time you need to put forth your best application. If you have not taken um, a test yet, if you don't have a GRE or a GMAT score um, or an executive assessment score, um, what you really need to think about is a, a timeline that looks more like nine to 12 months. Um, and uh, that might sound like a really long time to some folks, but really um, what that allows you to do is take the test multiple times and not be in a position where you're having to balance test prep with applications um, and sort of, you know, find yourself in, in this rush to get it all done at once. So, um, so again, if you don't have a test score, I, I like to recommend nine to 12 months. And if you've got a test score in hand, three to six. Great. And on that, let's talk about tests. And this is actually great, a great time to talk about this because there's a lot going on with GREs and GMATs with respect to MBA programs. So for context, we're doing this interview right now. It's probably the middle of September. And uh, this admissions application season has kicked off. And at least so far, from what I've been able to gather, there's a number of schools out there that have decided to change a little bit around their uh, MBA uh, uh, testing, po or, uh, testing policy for GREs and GMATs. So for right. you know, example, I just saw early this week uh, that MIT Sloan actually went out and said that for this year, uh, students will not, it's not mandatory to submit either a GMAT or GRE to gain admission. Um, that's kind of like one of the first of the M7 for this year, at least, mm -hmm. uh, to come out with that. And then there have been some other schools that have come out and said that as well. Uh, Georgia Tech's Scheller College of Business did. Um, uh, I believe that Vanderbilt Owens did something similar. Um, last, uh, a last, the last round of the last admission cycle, Darden came out and did something similar. And I believe they're continuing it on through this year. So a lot going on with, with the testing world. So number one, make sure you keep track of for the schools that you're looking at, what their policies are, but acknowledging that this is, you know, in flux and acknowledging just because of the world we live in with COVID. Um, can you talk a little bit about GRE versus GMAT and some of maybe the, the why you might lean one way or the other? Yeah. So, so when I'm uh, when I'm working with a client, sort of the, the first conversation we have, um, if they don't have a test score yet, is um, is is really like me encouraging them to take both tests, to take both exams in a practice test format, and just see where they score higher. Um, I, I find that that people really are um, have a, have an affinity for one or the other. I don't I don't know why I can't kind of break that down for you. I have a theory about it being kind of poets and fonts related, <laughs> but um, but I, I you know I think I think people. People naturally, um, one of the tests resonates more. I mean, these at the end of the day, these are standardized tests, and nobody wants to do them. But um, <laughs> but but beyond that, I you know I, I think um, I think take, taking a practice test for both, and really just getting a sense of what test is is a better fit for you. Um, either just because you score higher, or just because you like it better, is a really great great way to move forward. Um, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, there's a lot going on in this space right now. And I anticipate this sort of being um, the first domino to really set some changes in, in motion for the entire industry, um, not just for graduate business education, but even for undergraduate education. I think we're going to see some big changes in, in testing um, in, in coming years. 
Um, what's interesting, obviously, has during COVID too, we moved to the online GMAT. There was a big, a big kind of kerfuffle in the beginning about the the whiteboard and the online test, and um, you know now you can actually uh, take the online GMAT twice. Um, you were being limited to taking it once, but now you have the option to take it twice. So I think that's interesting. I also, you know, there's been a, a, a fair number of issues with folks taking the online version of the GRE, um, just in terms of uh, re reporting and test crashing. Um, so, so all of those things, to your point, are things to be thinking about right now. Um, and it's better, I think, to have a, uh, a plan A and a plan B and be ready to kind of pivot and adjust with those test scores, maybe in a way that you didn't have to be in any other year. Um, so, uh, so the short answer is take both, see what you like better, see where you do better. Um, but in this kind of COVID world, really be, be aware that you might have to be creative with your, um, not just testing outlets, but even with moving from, from one test to the other. I think those are all really great points. And again, just to add more color for our listeners out there, because yeah. I'm sure there are some people that have either dreams or nightmares about testing. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's definitely been an increase in the amount of applicants who are taking the GRE. Um, that's something that has been pretty consistent year over year. There was a pretty big surge in this past application cycle. Uh, just a brief example, looking at the stats from Yale SOM, uh, class of 2021, the percentage of students enrolled with GRE scores was about 24%. The class of 2022, that jumped to about 35%. And that is just one school. It's been pretty consistent in terms of there's definitely been an increase to varying degrees uh, at various programs, but that's the general trend. Um, one thing to note was that uh, when COVID hit, I believe the GRE was a little bit early or, or was able to move a little bit quicker in terms of being able to uh, deploy uh, an online kind of stay-at-home test, which could have been the reason for it, uh, but also to their, you know, as they were looking to, uh, as MBA programs are looking to kind of capture a diverse kind of applicant pool, um, you know, the GRE you know, certainly uh, does kind of um, uh, align nicely with um, some other types of candidates as well. And so, uh, but to your point, um, important to evaluate both, see what makes sense for you, and then be flexible and watch the deadlines and also the kind of policies as they evolve um, as we all kind of make sense of what's going on out there. Okay, we've talked about tests. That's a big one. Another big one, recommenders. What do we need to know about recommenders? How do we go about getting them? What, uh, what's your guidance here? Yeah, so um, so if I, you know, thinking about military applicants specifically for a moment, though, I, I think this advice applies to everyone. Um, you know, it can be really common um, when, I, when I start working with a military applicant to, for them to say, you know, hey, I worked, you know, I worked with this general once and I, I'm really thinking about using him or her as my recommender. Um, so there's this tendency to want to go directly for the flag officers, for the generals and the admirals um, and, and other high-ranking military officials. And, and my advice almost always is is no. Um, <laughs> so, so the goal here with recommenders is to avoid the sexy titles and instead go for the supervisors and um, in some cases, uh, you know, peers and colleagues who know you best. Um, and so this is the, you know, the, the guidance here is really about choosing people that are going to do the work for you. Because another, another thing we see a lot in the military, um, and this happens in other industries as well, is, uh, you know, is a, is a supervisor coming back and saying, yeah, hey, happy to write a recommendation for you, but can you just draft it up for me? Um, as we know, that is a huge no-no in MBA applications. Um, 
So really taking the time to, to figure out who the folks are that are really going to do the work for you. Who cares enough about you as an individual, as an applicant, um, you know, as somebody who wants to transition into a new career field post MBA to really, you know, um, to take the time to do the work for you. And so I think that's, that's the most important benchmark and certainly one that's way more important than title or rank. Certainly if you were an aide-de-camp or a general at some point in your military career and, and, and you had that close relationship with someone high-ranking great that's a different story um, but in the absence of having those really kind of close supervisory relationships um, you know my guidance is to always go with the folks who know you best I think that's great advice uh, both for military applicants but for any M- MBA applicant whatsoever I think you're absolutely right all right another big one school selection how should we think about that you know what are some things to keep in mind or uh, for finding the right school or set of schools to apply to yeah, so, so I think this, this question is super timely, right? Because it used to be um, that you could go visit these schools, right? You could go visit them and you could have, um, you know, coffee with people from the Veterans Club or, you know, whatever the affinity group that you were interested in um, at that particular school. Um, and you could really get a gut sense of, of the place and the people, right? So we don't have that right now. So, so folks are really relying on these virtual information sessions. And what I'm hearing from a lot of my clients this year is, gosh, these things all sound the same, right? Like they're just, they're running together. I can't get a good sense of like why one school is different than the other. Um, you know, the presentations might not be engaging. Um, and so, so I, I think it's, it's really a kind of a confusing time to, to figure out what the difference is between schools when you can't rely on kind of that gut in person, um, really, you know, visceral experience. Um, and so, so I think really um, the, the thing to do now um, more than ever is to think about kind of four key things. The first thing is, is class size. Are you somebody that really wants that smaller class environment or are you, you somebody who really kind of thrives in the energy of, of larger groups and teams? Um, along the same lines um, is is sort of the environment. Like, do you want to be in a city? Do you want to be at a Columbia or a Stern or a Booth? Or are you really more of a, you know, a Tuck kind of person or a Darden where you want to be in kind of that close-knit, more, um, you know, uh, rural uh, campus type type area? Um, the, The next thing would be teaching methodology. So we hear a lot, obviously, about the case method, but the case method isn't right for everybody. So is that something, um, you know, I encourage folks to really do some research and think about that and whether that's a good fit for their learning style. Um, And the final thing is really along the lines of curriculum. Um, And so what I mean by that is, are you somebody who wants a flexible course curriculum? Or do you want to go to a booth where you can choose what you want to, uh, the classes you want to take? Or do you want more of kind of the general management structure of a Kellogg, for example, where, um, you know, there, there might be less flexibility in that initial year. So this is kind of a, a know thyself, um, know what kind of learner you are and what kind of environments you really um, do well in. And that can really serve as a great, um, you know, a great first measure of which programs are going to be better fits for you. Um, and certainly measuring that with, you um, you know, with conversations with people from these or from these schools, with students, with admissions um, officials, all of that's going to be really important. Um, the, the second, the second piece of advice I really have about school selection is to cast a wide net, right? Um, so to not limit yourself to just applying to the top three schools that are your dream schools, that really come up with a comprehensive, holistic plan of six to eight programs that encompass schools from the top 25 that have geographic diversity, um, because by casting that wide net, 
especially in a year like this and what I presume will be a, a very competitive year next year as well. Um, you want to give yourself a, you know, a, a very, um, just a, a broader range of opportunities and you can do that through, um, through, through doing more applications. Yeah, thank you to hit all the really important ones. So I think that's great advice. The only one that I would also add, which was yeah. somewhere somewhere in there, was just around just career outcomes and just to the mm-hmm. degree that you know, to the degree that you think you know what you want to do, just making sure you take a little bit of a look at the career employer report just to make sure you know you get a better understanding of what that looks like for your school. Um, things like that, I think, can be really valuable. Or if you have the ability to connect with students who are there who are doing the thing that you're interested in doing, is just just having a little chat with them just to understand a little bit more of their journey and, and what resources they had to, to be able to be successful in that. Um, it may change, but it's, it's, it's a good, just, uh, it's a good exercise to do if you, if you are somewhat confident in the uh, career space that you're considering, uh, particularly because that data is available. And um, I, I was just going to add that I totally agree. It's sometimes really hard to get to know some of these schools and they all blend together. Um, I, I think I very much liken it a lot of times to, I think what a lot, I assume a lot of people are going through right now who are looking for new jobs, right? In terms of um, when they're going through the interview process, you know, really trying to get to know, you know, that company, right? Because you can't, you know, sit with them for an hour in a conference room to, to talk with them one-on-one and see them face-to-face and to really get it to understand, you know, what the culture and what it's like, what the values are. And so um, here's my take on this. Um, you should do all those things that they're providing. But it really is about the questions that you're asking to get the insights you need to help inform you about what it's like, because that's the best you can do. And so my advice is to consider asking a couple questions like this. Um, number one, uh, how did, what's an example of a value that your school has? And give me an example of where this played out, right? Um, so have them you know, talk about the values, right? And every school is going to talk about how they're collaborative, but like, give me a real example of where you've seen that in action for you and what the impact was, um, and really getting specific down to show me what that looks like. Um, or ask someone, you know, what is a good day like for you? Or what is a really challenging, challenging day like for you? And then, you know, what to what role does the school play a role in that, right? And that will also give you a better sense of, you know, how the school is really supporting or providing opportunities to their, to their students in, in real kind of ways. And then maybe the, the, la- the, the last question that, uh, that, I, would, that I would ask is, um, uh, you know, like I, I would ask something maybe around just um, uh, how the school has responded, right? Give, give, give some examples around that. And let me give you a really concrete example. Uh, I was recently had um, Mike Treaser and Sarah Izzo, who are the two co-presidents of the Fuqua MBAA, the MBA Association. And when COVID hit, one of the things that happened was that um, Sarah had to actually, Sarah was one of the co-presidents, joined a task force with um, the administration to figure out how they were going to respond collectively as a community. And that's a really great example in the sense that number one, they acted fast, schools had to, but number two, she was very much a part of that conversation. Administrators were looking to her to provide an ex- examples and insights about what students were feeling and how students were going to respond to all this. But that very much speaks to, uh, I think, one of the qualities of Fuqua in terms of it really truly being what they call Team Fuqua, right? And so um, that's a really good example. There are other schools that use different approaches, but uh, I think those are the types of questions. If you can start to ask them and start getting concrete examples, um, it may take a little bit of time for you to kind of delineate from school A to school B, but that level is going to help give you more insight into, okay, this might make a lot of sense or, or this one, maybe, maybe not so as much, but those are the types of questions I think you want to ask because yeah, it can be really hard in any given webinar to really ascertain, 
what the nuances or differences are from, you know, school A versus school B. So just a little bit of color commentary, you know, along that. Okay. So this application process is um, one of the things that it really is meant to be. And I know this to be true um, from my own experience is um, it really is your chance to share your own story of who you are. Right. And number one, because uh, uh, admissions app, uh, admissions directors want to know, uh, and they want to get to know you before they admit you. Um, but also it's your chance to also stand out and be unique so that they can delineate you from all the other great applicants that are applying. Um, one of the ways to do that really is by being unique and by being yourself. Uh, but that sometimes means you have to be authentic. And sometimes that means you have to also be a little bit vulnerable. Um, and so I'm curious, how do you coach uh, applicants to kind of navigate this, particularly if you're not someone who typically likes to, you know, uh, be all fuzzy and, and warm and kind of talk about, you know, your authentic self or, or maybe even show vulnerability for that matter. You know, how do you kind of balance that or how do you guide your, your, your clients on how to balance that? Yeah, the, I, this is, um, this is a great question um, because, you know, I think it's something that, um, that a lot of applicants aren't necessarily thinking about when they go down the, um, the path of an MBA journey, you know, at no point, um, you know, do you say to yourself, gosh, I'm going to have to really do some, super uh, deep soul searching here. Um, you just don't really think about that. But then I'll have clients that I, that I worked with, you know, come back to me after it's all, you know, said and done and say, gosh, you know, like what a, what a transformative experience just in terms of having to think through like my life and, um, you know, kind of what's important to me. So, so I think that's where it starts. So I think, you know, we can all kind of acknowledge that vulnerability um, and, and authenticity are, are difficult, right? Like they require some really, uh, an individual who's really willing to be reflective and, and introspective about their life and their experiences. Um, you know, increasingly schools are looking, you know, looking for these humanizing elements. They, they know what your professional track record is. They can see your successes. They know what your accomplishments are on your resume, or they should be able to if you've done your resume well, right? Um, and so what, they're, what schools are really asking um, in the essays these days is really, you know, uh, the, the personal reflection that, 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 that encourages you to open up um, and really share what's unique about you. Um, and so I like to say that we, that we think about this not so much as explaining what you've done, but why you've done it, right? So, um, you know, you've got a, a kind of a laundry list of accomplishments, but, but what, what are the motivating factors behind those things? What really drove you to get involved in the things that you got involved in or to push forward on a certain project at work? Um, and, and so the, the, the key here is to really be authentic in a way that speaks to, to how you've made decisions in your life and the defining experiences in your life that make you truly unique. Um, so I, I really focus on the, the so what um, with my clients. So the so what is basically asking yourself why the admissions committees will be interested to know that about you as it relates to getting an MBA or succeeding in their program, right? So it's not just about the why behind kind of the things you've done, but also is that something that they really need to know? So, you know, the admissions committee isn't really interested in, in, uh, in how being vulnerable about love resulted in you getting engaged to your high school sweetheart, right? But they would be interested in the story of how you, you failed at something and how you overcame that failure and used it to be a stronger person and professional, right? Um, and so, so this is about coming up with those stories that really leverage past behavior as a predictor of future success. Um, and, and really being willing to kind of explore the motivating factors behind the things in your life. Um, but, but it's hard. It's hard. It's hard work. It is. And I often tell people that the MBA application process is a really good soul searching and reflection process. 
Um, you know, obviously yeah. you want the desired outcome, but there's a lot to be learned from it in addition to hopefully getting also the um, admissions choice of your choosing. So um, it can be a very good learning process and, and, and really open people up to the chance, if you haven't had the chance to really think deeply about those things to get a chance to do that. So, you know, certainly as part of that process, um, it's really about being able to look within yourself, find those experiences, right? But then to talk about them uh, and then translate them in a compelling way, right? And, you know, and the way that I think about it is being able to really tell that story of who you are. So can you talk a little bit about being able to translate some of those experiences into compelling stories? You know, how does, how does someone do that, particularly someone who's in a military applicant? Yeah, so, um, so my background, um, you know, that I didn't really get into earlier, but I'm also a certified career development professional. And this is where I really, I kind of dig deep into that, that training when it comes to, to, uh, to helping people kind of pull out the stories that have been defining in their lives. Um, and I actually use a very specific process called the career construction interview um, to help deconstruct a client's upbringing and formative life experiences. Um, and so we go through that process together um, and through that we're able to kind of identify the pivotal stories that really sum up and best represent the core values um, and motivations of, of, of the client that I'm working with. Um, and so I, I really think it, it's about, um, you know, again, the, the authenticity comes into play here, but, but, um, but also just really making sure that, um, that you're taking the time to be reflective and honest and understand your, your own path. Um, and, and a lot of times the, the stories that are most meaningful to you will be the stories that, that you, that you're able to end up using. Um, and, but it's, it's about control, controlling the narrative, right? So you're not including all the details, but you are kind of thinking through, um, you know, what was most important to you about those, those stories. And, and lots of people really haven't done that before. So they kind of know what those key moments in their lives are, but maybe they haven't thought about, um, kind of the why and the influencing factors behind them. So it's a really about kind of matching up all of these pieces together. Um, and we spend, I spend a lot of time with my clients really thinking through, like I said, those, those formative early experiences. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you're highlighting too, is that, I mean, well, first off, you know, your story better than anyone else does, right? right. Because they're, they're your lived experiences. But the second thing is, is that you choose how to tell the story that is yours. Right. And that that is on you very much. No one else can tell you how to do that. You can do that on your own. That said, and I think why it's great to, you know, not just making a plug for you, but because but I truly believe it. Um, sometimes we don't always appreciate the stories about ourselves because we just <laughs> consider them to be things that are just us. Right. It is really helpful and really valuable to get someone to be able to shine a mirror back onto us, but also so that other people can tell us how we perceive them. And in this case, someone like you or any other admissions consultant for that matter, to really help and unearth and pull out that because there's probably a lot of things that are really unique about ourselves that we may not necessarily consider to be unique or powerful or impactful upon first glance. And so whether it's working with an admissions consultant or a trusted mentor or a guide, um, I do really encourage people, particularly in that storytelling component, to really get feedback from others about those stories that are unique or the things that make us unique, because um, we may know some of that, but sometimes we do need someone else to help us shine that light um, and to bring things to light that maybe we couldn't see um, within ourselves. So I think there's just a lot of value there. Um, well, 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Emily. Uh, this has been really great. We've really been able to unpack a little bit about what MBA uh, military applicants really need to know to succeed in the MBA application process. So thank you for joining me. I guess my last question to you is, um, if our listeners want to know more about you or they want to find you, where, uh, where can they find you online or where should they go to uh, learn more about what, what you do and, and how to connect with you? Yeah, Al, thank you so much. This has been great, um, and I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, so uh, you can find me at uh, militarymbaconsulting.com, um, and uh, you can uh, shoot me a, a, a message through the website. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn, so uh, feel free to, to look me up that way as well. Hi, everyone. Al D. here, and thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.